Well, good morning again. Uh, If you are new here with us this morning, we are continuing our sermon series on a life that is called. For us as Christians, we have specific markers in Scripture that we are called to. We are called to love one another. We are called uh, to uh, righteousness and justice. We are called to a holy life. And today we're going to look at the calling in Scripture that we are called to peace. Now, life produces inevitable moments for us, whether externally or internally, where we have extreme anxiety or despair or fear or frustration. And it can seem like the furthest thing from us is the calmness that peace provides. And what can be equally frustrating for us as Christians is that we know that we have this calling to live a life of peace, that we have peace in and around us. And it can be debilitating for a few reasons to hear the preacher say that you should have a life that's called to peace because it's debilitating because our homes aren't at peace. Our lives aren't at peace. Our schedules are full. We're busier than ever. We're always moving. There's always a project. There's always conflict. Something is always happening that doesn't give us this sense of peace. It's debilitating because our minds aren't at peace. Our minds are always racing to what's next, work, school, children, getting older, our parents getting older. Our minds are often filled with things that don't last, like entertainment that doesn't satisfy or experiences that do not last. It can be debilitating because our souls don't feel at peace. So this morning, you might be here and you might say, I I don't know that my life has really experienced peace in a while and how can I have this peace? How do we experience true peace that lasts? Paul's going to tell us today in this passage that we're going to read that he has found the secret. That he has found the secret to peace, to be content in no matter the circumstance. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 12 together. As you're turning there, here is our goal today, is to look at uh, these two questions. What is peace and how do I get it? Now, when I was outlining uh, this sermon series, uh, I was originally going to combine two today that were called to peace and peacemaking. But as we were going through it, it quickly turned out that we we're going to be here over an hour, and I know you don't want that, so we're going to divide it into two. So today we're just going to look at the one call that we're called to peace. Now let's read together. If you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be on the screen here. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 12, it says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. <clears throat> Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. 
Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. All right, so this morning we're going to ask the question, what is peace? So we're going to have a pop quiz. What is the biblical definition of peace? It's on the screen. You have four choices. The biblical definition of peace. Next slide, Dustin. The absence of conflict, having all of your flock, being well, being complete, or experiencing restoration. What is the biblical definition of peace? Next slide has the answer. I didn't put all of the above because that's a dead giveaway when you're taking a test. Like when I was in school, if there was ever the choice, like E, all of the above, I was always circling it because it's always all of the above. But it is all of the above. The biblical definition of peace is described as this one word, Hebrew word, shalom. And shalom is used in reference to the absence of conflict, having all of your flock, being well, being complete, or experiencing restoration. Job says this about shalom, that his tents were in a state of peace because he counted his flocks and no animals were missing. Job 5.24 says, you shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. Other translations interpret shalom to be safe or secure. Shalom can also refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visits his brothers who are on the battlefield, he asks specifically about their peace. He asks about their shalom. First Samuel says this, David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. Tim Mackey says this about Hebrew, the Hebrew word shalom. He says, the core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. The basic meaning of shalom is to be complete, like when Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. The basic meaning of shalom is also to restore if you accidentally damage your neighbor's field or you injure one of their animals to bring back shalom to the situation, you give them a complete repayment for their loss. What's missing is restored to its wholeness. The same goes for human relationships with shalom. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. When rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't mean they just stop fighting. It also means that they work together for one another's benefit. So the first question that we have, what is biblical peace? It is to bring shalom, which literally means to make whole or to restore. So when we think about peace, our definitions to say that our life is uh, peace of mind or we have the absence of conflict, maybe it's when the kids go to bed and it's quiet in the house, to say that that's simply peace is to miss the full definition. Are those things peaceful? Yes. But true peace, true shalom is much deeper. And this is why Paul is going to say this in Ephesians and he's gonna give a, a wide range of what peace looks like. Let's read Ephesians 2 together. And notice how many times through six verses Paul uses the word peace and what it means. 
He says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For those through him both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So when we see Paul in these six verses, he describes peace in Christ Jesus does these things for us, thinking of our biblical definition of peace. It restores right relationship, it removes conflict, it creates well-being, it unites a new humanity. Peace is the words that come from his mouth. Peace has no requirement on who is in or who is out. It is simply brought by the one who brings peace. Peace provides access to the Father. Peace provides shelter. Peace provides a home. Notice the elevation of what peace does. It provides, it makes us citizens, then it brings us closer to saints, but then also it makes us family. How does this work for Christ Jesus? because of his great love for us. So what is peace? What is shalom for us? It is restoring wholeness. It makes complete what is broken. It's not simply the absence of conflict, but the restoration of relationship. For us to have peace with Christ Jesus, with the Father, it brings us to wholeness because of Christ Jesus. Now what is the opposite of peace? Paul tells us that it's to be anxious about things. He tells us this instruction, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now we can read this passage the wrong way. We can read it in a way that says, I'm anxious about a lot of things, my finances, job, stress, economy, whatever it is, and I need to let God know. And so once I, he knows and he answers my prayers, then I'll receive peace. How many of you have left the job thinking that the old one was terrible, I just need a fresh start, and I'll be satisfied? You get to the new job, and 10 months later, it's the same thing. How many of you have maybe thought, I need a new place to live, something bigger, more bedrooms, not a yard, quieter neighborhood. Ten months later, it's the same anxiety, different creeks. House breaks down, different spots, different AC problems. Same roof, more expensive mortgage. When Jess and I were moving from Pineville to Grant, <laughs> we got some yeses back there. When Jess and I were moving from Pineville to Grant, we were like, man, we're going to live next to family. It's going to be so much easier. We have a bigger house, a nicer yard. We don't have to worry about all this traffic. We could just let the kids go outside and play. But man, when we got there, it's just like the things that we noticed were problem after problem after problem. There's a new house, just different problems. And I knew going into that, I knew that the money we were investing, it wasn't going to provide true peace for me, but I had the hope. I had the hope that it was going to make my life better. When we view peace to be just what God can provide for us in the moment, we miss the true completeness of peace. Peace does not come from getting what we want. 
Whatever it is we are dissatisfied with, whatever gives us problems, whatever frustrates us, getting it doesn't mean that we have lasting peace. Peace doesn't get, come from getting what we want. Peace rather comes from getting what we need. What we need is what we've already mentioned, the peace that we receive in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins and trespasses. And if you're here this morning, the odds are you've probably heard that message. You've probably heard that you need to be reconciled with God through Christ Jesus and receive peace. But if you've heard that message and you've lived longer than a day, you also know that our lives are still filled with anxiety. Our lives are still filled with problems and pain, and it can feel like our life does not have peace at all. I trust and believe in Jesus, but my life is still filled with fear and anxiety and unrest. Paul says, here's the secret. What does Paul say that we need to do about these things? He tells us that we need to be full of thanksgiving, that we need to think, and that we need to be thoughtful that we need to be full of thanksgiving, that we need to think, and we need to be thoughtful. And this will bring about true peace. Thanksgiving is not an uncommon theme for Paul in the scriptures. In 1 Thessalonians, he says this, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now, doesn't that sound like the definition of peace that we've described? to make wholeness to relationship. But he says this, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Which circumstances do we give thanks in? All circumstances. Which circumstances? Every one of them, all of them. Now, I've uh, probably... Uh, milked this dry, the sermon illustrations that I've gotten from uh, Corey Tim Boom's book, The Hiding Place. But if I can't make you read it, I'm just gonna tell you all about it in these illustrations because they're so powerful. They are incredibly powerful. One of the first stories uh, that she shares is of her Aunt Jan, and it's the, the story that first made just tears stream down my face. Now, Corey's Aunt Jan could at oftentimes be seen to be pessimistic, but that didn't stop her from doing extraordinary work. She was one of the first to start soldier centers that would provide aid to the men fighting in war. She was heavily involved in raising funds for being an advocate for them, for starting clubs that would help in this effort. She went around speaking and writing to promote the need for these centers. She was a woman that saw a need and took the initiative to do something about it. Now in those days, in the late 1920s, diabetes was a death sentence. And one day the doctor came to her and let her know that she did have diabetes. Upon hearing that news, Jan threw herself into her room in a bit of despair. Not to be sidelined quickly, though, she quickly turned her efforts into what she could do from home. If anyone could beat diabetes, she thought it would be her. Now, she had to do weekly tests to check her blood sugar. And the story goes that Corey would be the one that would administer these tests. And she would go take a sample of blood. She'd go down into the kitchen. She'd heat it up, shake it up. And if it came back clear, it was all good. If it came back black, it was no longer good. Now, every week, every Friday, Corey would go and administer these tests. And for months, everything was fine until one day it wasn't. Now, this is how the story picks up. I'm just going to read the excerpt from this. 
Corey goes to tell her father. Her father says, are you sure that it's right? They went and checked the doctor. Everything came back. And this is what her father says. We will tell her together, the father decided, though I will speak the necessary words. And perhaps with his face brightening, she will take heart from all that she has accomplished. She put great store uh, on the accomplishments that she has done. Jan does and who knows, but that she is right. The little procession filed up the stairs to Aunt Jan's room. Come in, she called at Father's knock. And she added as she always did, and close the door before I catch my death of drafts. She was sitting at a round mahogany table, working on yet another appeal for her soldiers' center. As she saw the number of people entering the room, she laid down her pen. She looked from one face to another until she came to mine and gave a little gasp of comprehension. It was Friday morning, and I had not yet come up with the results of the test. My dear sister, Father began gently, there is a joyous journey which each of God's children sooner or later sets out on. And Jan, mm, some must go to the Father empty-handed, but you will run to him with hands full. All your clubs... And Anna ventured. Your writings, Mama added. The funds you raised, said Betsy. Your talks, our began. But our words were useless. In front of us, the proud face crumbled. Aunt Jan, her face, put her hands over her face and began to weep. Empty, empty, she choked at last through her tears. How can we bring to anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? And we all listened in disbelief as she lowered her hands and with tears still coursing down her face, she whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross and that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. What was she doing in this moment, in this moment of despair? She was thanking Jesus what he has done that we get to bring nothing. We, you hear this, we get to bring nothing. It is the great freedom that we have in Christ Jesus that he has done everything on our behalf. It's not the work that you've done, it's not the efforts that you provide, it is all resting in the work of Christ Jesus. And in this we get to lovingly bring nothing and securely bring nothing. She was thanking Christ Jesus, but it soon turned to thinking. How is it that in church history, if you read the, the men and women who have been martyred, that have been nailed to the cross alive, that have been burned at the cross alive, how is it that in their screams of pain, they're also singing psalms of praise? How is it that they are also praising the Lord because Christians can live thankful lives in the most cruel circumstances through the pains of death, death, because to die is gain, Paul says. Paul tells us that the, the worst thing that can happen to us is for us to die. But for the believer, it's the best thing that can happen to us because we are immediately ushered into the presence of Christ Jesus. And this is something that gives us an immense peace to live in our lives. What is it that we can be thankful for? Romans 8, 39, for I am convinced that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When I first became pastor here, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, a new pastor, just rumors go, they thought that I was, we're gonna shut down the school, and the other rumor was that we're gonna sell the church. Now, I have news for you. We cannot sell the church. The church cannot be bought. It was bought once by Christ's blood, and it's not up for resale. We are the church, and he has purchased us by his blood, and we are securely in him. Death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons can separate us from Christ's great love for us, and this is something that we should be thankful for. What is our peace? Paul tells us to be pushed towards thanksgiving, that nothing separates us from Christ Jesus. Later in The Hiding Place, there's a story of Corey and her sister in prison at Ravensbrook. It's not just a prison, it's a brutal concentration camp where they are sleeping on rotting mats of straw. Uh, They have, their prison is infested with fleas It reeks of the stench of people not being able to shower for weeks at a time. And the story goes that they were on their fourth rereading of the New Testament while in the prison. And her sister, Betty, says, you know what I'm thankful for today? She says, I'm thankful that Father is in heaven. And Betty says, yes, that he is more alive than we are now. She says, you know what I'm thankful for today? that we are together. And Corey says, yes, this is a wonderful thing. And then Betty says this, you know what I'm thankful for today? The fleas. And this is where Corey says, no, you've you've gone too far. And Betsy says, or Betty says, 1 Thessalonians, it tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. And she began to tell her that you see, it's the fleas that are here that allow us to read scripture freely and to share it with everyone here freely. Christian, I mean, we, my my mom and uh, Jess have been cleaning out uh, some of the closets back here. You know how many Bibles we have back there? Over 2,000. Over 2,000 Bibles. And we are gathering here freely, opening the word freely. We are under no threat of persecution. This is great reason for thanksgiving. It should provide us great comfort in peace. So Paul tells us the secret to being content, the secret to peace first is to be thankful with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The second thing is this. Paul tells us at the end to think about these things, whatever is true, honorable, worthy. But this word for true, what Paul is, is telling us to think on, is what is truth found in the scriptures? What is the truth that we see in the word? First Timothy says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Christ Jesus came to save you and me. And if you think you are too far off, too far gone, listen to what Paul says. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This means that Jesus Christ came 
to save me. This means that Jesus Christ came to save you. And if there is any backtracking to say, we don't know me, you don't know what I've done, Paul says that I'm the foremost, I'm the chief of sinners. Listen, uh, I read this poem this week of the gentleness of Jesus. Uh, In the Gospel of John, the first person that Jesus publicly displays, uh, reveals who he is as the Messiah is to a woman at a well. It says this, the Jesus I know chose a woman, a victim, a foreigner, lonely, tired, defensive, to be the first person to so clearly hear his true identity as the Messiah in a one-on-one intimate conversation over a drink of water. Jesus knows exactly who you are, where you are, the doubts you have, the anxiety and fear that cripples you, the sin that defeats you. He knows all of that and more. And you know what he says to you? Come, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come and I will give you rest for your souls. The peace of Christ that transcends all understanding is that in his great love for us, while we were still sinners, he died for us. He made a way for us. Paul tells us to think about the truth in scriptures, that we bind our hearts and our minds to these things. We delight in the word, as the psalmist says. We delight in who he is and what he has done. And when we delight in the truth of scripture, we have peace. We have peace. Paul tells us to think on whatever is honorable. Now remember from last week, if you were here, This section of scripture is coming off of this encouragement from Paul with two feuding sisters in the church who co-labored with Paul in the planting of this church. They have divided for some reason. They have an argument for some reason. And word has gotten back to Paul. And Paul encourages the church to say, think on these things in Christ Jesus. Be united in Christ Jesus. Whatever feud you have, lay it down to the side for the sake of Christ Jesus. Who are you at odds with? Who is it that you're at odds with that creates this tension of unrest and no peace? Is it a spouse? Is it a coworker, a relative, a friend? Paul says for us, what is there that is honorable about that person that you can think on? What is commendable? What, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, Husbands and wives, this would be a good discipline to practice within our homes. Do you want to be your home? Do you want your home to be a place of peace? Do you want to nurture rest? Do you want to foster goodness? What is there honorable about your spouse? What are they doing well? How they loved and served your family well? This is a good practice uh, for us as believers from Paul. It's a good practice for us as a church family to be at peace with one another. It's a command in scripture for us to encourage one another. There is a command in scripture for us to encourage one another and outdo one another in showing honor. It does it, it is something that we are to do frequently. It's not passive, it's something that is active. Paul tells us what we have learned, received, and seen from him, we do these things. We have learned Christ and him crucified. We have received grace upon grace. And Paul says, in this way, what you've seen from me, imitate. Paul tells us that as 
uh, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Paul tells us that the way that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is to lay down our lives for one another, what is honorable, commendable, and excellent about one another. Think on these things. We are called to thanksgiving. We are called to thinking and the truth and the scriptures of what's true, what's honorable, what's commendable. Then lastly, we're called to thoughtfulness. Here's Paul again. He says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, over all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is peace again? It's the resolution of conflict. We bear another one in love. What is peace again? It's restoring to right relationship. How do we do this? With all humility and gentleness. How do we do this? Maintaining the unity of the spirit through the bond and peace. What's the bond of peace? Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that we have learned that he has learned in every situation to be content. Here's what this means, that peace is a discipline. Peace is a learned activity. Peace is something that we practice. It's not just something that we experience, although it is an experience. It's not just something that brings us contentedness, although it does. It is something that we actively participate in. How do we do this? By thinking, thinking, and loving one another. You see, if you put your peace in your relationships, in your money, your job, your status, your influence, your notoriety, it will provide a temporary peace. But it will also eventually let you down. It's always changing. It will never satisfy. So for us to find true peace, we must put our trust and our peace in the one thing that never changes. We must find the one thing that is truly true, that is truly honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. We must find the one thing that is all of these things perfectly, and we will find true peace. In the Gospel of John, after Jesus raised Lazarus, you know what it says? That Jesus set his eyes towards Jerusalem. Here's what this means that Jesus knew that he was marching towards his death and he was intent on it. Jesus, who although he went without a fight, was full of such anxiety that he sweat drops of blood in the garden. Jesus, who in the midst of the most intense peer pressure and had the power to back it up, didn't take himself off the cross, rather, he cried out in anguish, why have you forsaken me? You see, it's easy for us to look at the life of Jesus and say, well, he was full of peace. No, Jesus went to the cross without peace. He went without peace so that we might find true peace. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become with peace, righteousness of God, meaning that we can face death with peace. What does death give us? Life to the fullest extent. 
to be in the presence of God because he is making all things new. So church, how do we experience true peace? We find the one who is truly good, honorable, praiseworthy, commendable, all of these things in Christ Jesus. And we trust and we know that when death comes, as it will come for all of us, we are fully in the presence of him. Now I want to share a uh, story with you. It's a story that we're all familiar with, but I want to recount it for us uh, because I think that it sums up peace for us. Horatio Spafford, uh, he was a wealthy man who was active in his church and was partners in sharing the gospel with the famous D.L. Moody. Horatio and his wife were blessed with five children, one boy and four girls. Tragedy came, though, uh, to their home one day when his four-year-old son, Horatio Jr., died of scarlet fever. The next year, the family lost everything they owned in the great Chicago fire of October in 1871. Two years later, still in uh, rebuilding mode uh, in Chicago, the family decides to take a vacation to England. But Horatio's held up. He has some things that he has to accomplish back at home before he can join his family. So he sends his wife and his four daughters on the ship to go to England. Tragically, on their way to England, there was an accident at sea where two ships collide together. As the ship is sinking, his wife gathered all four girls together, 11-year-old Anna, 9-year-old Margaret, 5-year-old Elizabeth, and 2-year-old Tanetta to pray together as the ship sank and their inevitable death was coming. Miraculously, his wife was found alive, unconscious, floating on a plank of wood in the middle of the sea. Once she was rescued, and in England, she sent the most terrible two-word letter back. She said, survived alone. On his way to meet his wife, as they're passing over the, the spot where the ship sank, he pins the famous hymn that we all know, It is well with my soul. How can he say that it is well with his soul? Because he's thinking. He's thinking about the life-saving ministry of Jesus. That even though death has come, he says he trusts that his daughters are with the Lord. He's thinking. He's thinking that even though death has come, that the Lord has made a way for him. He has bound his heart and his mind to the truths that we see in Scripture, and he has true peace. Now, peace does not mean that we don't have great heartache. Peace does not mean that we don't have external anxieties or external fears or things like that, but peace does mean, true biblical peace does mean that we rest in the true hope and restoration of Christ Jesus. This is, however, not the end of the story for Horatio and his wife. His wife had three more children, another son who they also named Horatio after his brother. That son, too, died at the age of four. In August of 1888, or 1881, 10 years after the fire, I mean, they've just experienced the worst decade of their life. 
You could imagine that they would just forget the church, forget Jesus, obviously he doesn't love me, and just move on. Find anything that would provide any comfort, any happiness in their life at all. What they do is they sell everything that they have. He and his wife and his two new daughters, they move to Jerusalem, and they devote their life to taking care of the needy, helping the poor, and taking in homeless children. When they died... They were buried next to each other in Jerusalem with the inscription on their tomb, it is well with our soul. How can this be? First, we must think. We have a peace, as Paul says, that transcends all understanding. We believe that to die is gain. To live now is Christ. To live now means that we lay down our lives for one another, we suffer one another, we march on well because we know that to die is gain. Second, we must be thankful. A peace that transcends all understanding doesn't send us to guilt, but it sends us to thankfulness. Don't guilt yourself into thankfulness. You can be thankful for what Christ Jesus has provided. Third, we must be thoughtful and loving towards others. A peace that transcends all understanding turns our needs towards others as Christ has turned his face towards us to lay down his life for us. We now lay down our lives for one another as Christ Jesus. And here's the last question that we have on uh, the sermon notes that I have for you today. Can you have peace in Christ Jesus? Can you have peace in Christ Jesus? Yes. First, we must see God's purpose is to live with his people forever. For God to be with his people where there is no more sin, shame, death, despair, it's gone. Sin and has broken relationship with God, but he has now made a way for us through his son. Romans 5.1, we now have peace through God, through Christ Jesus. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life for he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that we might have life through him. We confess the problem of our sin and our separation. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but we hope in this peace that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly because of his great love for us. 1 Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. 1 Peter, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Peter in Acts says this in response, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How can you have peace with God? Repent and believe, submit to his lordship. Come to him freely. He gives us everything that he has. So that one day, when we close our eyes in death, we will experience life in the most fullest way that we never have. And we can truly say with Horatio Spafford that it is well with our soul. We have true peace in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray knowing that in this room, is even as I have felt this past week, just the tendencies to be pulled away from peace and to anxiety and to worry and to wonder and to question. And so, Father, I know that in this room, because we are all sinful, we're all messed up, that we 
all collectively have this nagging anxiety that follows us around constantly. Father, that we have this nagging unrest that is ever present in front of us. So Father, I pray that we can bind these words to our heart by your spirit, that we think well. Father, that we're thankful for what you've done. Father, and that that leads us to true peace in you. Father, I I thank you that we can have true peace in Christ Jesus. And I pray that this be the marker of Alpine, that because we have peace in you, Christ Jesus, we are known for sharing your peace and love, your grace and your mercy that you have so freely given us as we freely share it with others. It's in Jesus' name I pray.